Have you ever called someone materialistic in a negative way? Or maybe someone has called you that? There's some things we need to consider when it comes to materialism. And that's exactly what we're discussing today with our guest, Beck Mitchell. Beck is an international keynote speaker, physiotherapist, meditation and Pilates teacher, and is completing her master's in positive psychology at the University of Melbourne. She works in the corporate wellbeing space with the likes of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Westpac, Ernest & Young, General Assembly, and the Australian Army. Beck says, evidence-based wellbeing helps us to think clearer, be more creative, focus more effectively, enhances our mood, and allows us to give more to the world. And isn't that what life is all about? Let's dive in. Here we are. Beck Mitchell, welcome to Virgin Active Minds. How are you? Thank you, Mark. I'm very well, thank you. I am very glad to have you here. I've been following you on Instagram and you've got such incredible nuggets of gold, I should say, amongst your Instagram. And that's why I was so keen to reach out to you and I thought it would be wonderful to have you on the show. Um, so I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So look, we are going to talk about something. As I was thinking about this episode before we started chatting this morning, you know, this idea around materialism and owning things and making more money to own more things. And it's quite a challenging topic. I think it's not such an easy topic. And, you know, we were just talking before we hit record around, you know, the yoga space. And obviously I come from that yoga space and it teaches you a lot of things around contentment and letting go and surrender. Whereas, you know, the topic we're about to talk about, which is, you know, buying things and collecting things, it sometimes makes us feel good, but then sometimes those feelings don't last. And is that the right way to think about life? But then you turn to yoga or some other more spiritual based practices and it tells you no. And so I guess that's kind of where we are going to go today. So first question actually is from a psychological standpoint or even just a human standpoint, like are we wired to want things and to collect things? We're all just basically <laughs> complicated bowerbirds at the end of the day, aren't we? I think it's interesting listening to you talk about this balance between, you know, things that we want and think that are going to make us happy and then actually don't end up making us happy, which makes it interesting from an evolutionary perspective because you'd think surely our brain is going to be wired to make us want things that make us happy. But unfortunately, the brain is more designed for survival, right? And I think when we think about what is it that really drives human survival, there's a number of things, but one of the things is really connection. And in order to gain connection, one of the ways we do that is to try and purvey this sense of status and success. You know, if I've got a Porsche and I, you know, have fancy clothes and a Rolex watch, people will know that I am doing well in life. And if, if they know I'm doing well, they're going to want to spend time with me. They might want to marry me. They might want to be my friend. They might want to work for me. So I think a large part of it comes back to that really sort of primal need for human connection. So even though it sounds like this sort of really can sound like a bit of an unattractive quality to be wanting to collect items, there is certainly, I think, deep down maybe 
a sort of a nice reason that we want to do this sort of this this need for status in order to then gain connection. You know what? I've never considered that. I honestly have just never considered that. And it's kind of, in a way, for me, it just felt like a little bit of a lifting, like, oh, this is, you know, when I go through those moments and, you know, even as a yogi, of course, I go through those moments of buying a whole bunch of stuff in order to, I don't know, get that dopamine hit or whatever. But I've never thought about it in a way of maybe this is me just reaching out you know, wanting a sense of connection and how it's almost a beautiful thing in the background to know that that's potentially where this drive and desire is coming from. And yeah, you just mentioned that bowerbird analogy and that's what a bowerbird does, right? Like they collect all these beautiful blue objects, put it around the nest that he's created in the hope of attracting a female. Yeah, that's actually a really beautiful way to frame that. Never really thought about it in that sense. I think it's sort of one of those things where we're not great at giving ourselves compassion as human beings for some of these qualities that we might consider a bit grotesque, you know, but really at the end of the day, most of us are, are just out there trying to survive and that's what our brains are wired to do. And, you know, I often even think about the aesthetic changes that we make to our bodies and even that often is really, again, just, we just want connection. You know, if I'm putting filler in my lips or I'm, I don't know, getting those six pack <laughs> implants that you can get these days. At the end of the day, those people just want love. You know, I think we can sometimes potentially when we come from these space of you know, yoga or mindfulness or Buddhism, think about those people in a negative way, but really we're all after the same things. Yeah, that's right. That's another thing to keep in mind, right? Because also from a spiritual space where you shouldn't be judging either. And so, yeah, looking at it in a way that, you know, we are all probably wanting the same thing and we might all try to get there in different ways as well. Um, and maybe certain directions aren't necessarily as more pious than others. They're just different, right? Can you talk to us about the arrival fallacy? Yes. So the arrival fallacy was actually, it was coined by a positive psychologist, um, which is what I'm currently studying as well. So it's this idea that we think that once we achieve our goals, we will achieve this eternal happiness. So, you know, for example, you have been saving all through your twenties to buy this gorgeous apartment that you've had in your head. <laughs> you end up, you're at the auction, you know, you're 29 and your goal was by 30 that you're going to buy this apartment. Um, there's a bunch of boomers next to you that are trying to outbid you, but in the end you make it. And for the low price of, you know, $1.5 million, you buy a studio apartment in Bondi and you think this is it, you know, I've achieved it. I've made my goal. I'm going to be happy now. And maybe for a little while you are, but then of course, you know, you move into the apartment and the furniture that you've got from your crummy old rental isn't nice enough. And it really would be nice if you had a boyfriend to bring home to your apartment. Like it's lonely in your beautiful apartment on your own. And so suddenly that happiness that was maybe there quite fleetingly is gone and you're wanting more. And that's just, you know, it's the nature of human beings. And I think though what's really powerful about understanding the psychology behind it is that if you're aware of the fact that gaining these goals is not going to achieve that lasting happiness, you know, these sort of external material goals, you can enjoy the journey a little bit more because you can be thinking, you know, as I'm saving the money, you know, I'm not just constantly thinking about the end result. I'm thinking I want to be enjoying myself in the work that I'm doing 
in order to make the money to buy this apartment because probably the apartment itself is not going to be that magic bullet that's going to give me this lasting happiness and well-being. Yeah, I mean, that's a big one, right? Like I even think about it when I've bought a new car and that first couple of months, it's been cleaned every weekend. You're taking such good care of it. You're like, you're in love with this object. But then eventually it's like, oh, I haven't cleaned the car for six months and it probably needs a service. And, you know, it's kind of that honeymoon period with it kind of ends and dies at some point. And then of course, something could step in or your brain shifts or your mind shifts. And I've just noticed it now. I've started looking at other cars. I don't need another car. I have a perfectly good car in the driveway, but I've just started looking and it's like, that's the worst thing to do. It's such a dangerous thing because, you know, obviously financially cars are the worst investment in the world. But how interesting that, you know, it's trying again to reframe that mindset around Okay, don't put it all on just the car or just the apartment, but, you know, take this mindset of of enjoying the journey and the hindsight, the knowledge of knowing that, you know, maybe this apartment or car in the end isn't going to be this eternally blissful, happy state. And it also, I guess when you think about it too, it also means that you need to look it might, you know, as soon as you start noticing it, you'll start noticing it all the time. You know, you think, oh, if I've got this new outfit or I've got this cool new piece of jewelry or what, whatever it is, you know, that's going to be the thing. As soon as you start noticing, oh, hang on, a week after owning that beautiful piece of jewelry, it's not really changing my life anymore. It starts to reinforce to your brain that that's actually, you know, not the case. And then you might start to think to yourself, what else could I be doing to achieve happiness? What is it that will truly improve my well-being in the long term? And I think really the best way that the brain learns is through experience and starting to notice your own emotions and how you react to things, because it's really hard to sort of, you know, listen to a podcast and have someone say, buying a house won't make you happy because you're like, yeah, 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 that's nice for you to say, because maybe you already own a house and, you know, it's really the one thing that would make me happy. But as soon as you start noticing it in small amounts in your own daily life, that's, I think, the best way to kind of change how your brain works and then then you get it kind of provides this space that then you can pay attention to other things and and you know maybe you think actually the coffee that i drink every morning is the thing that really provides me with this really this moment of stillness you know i sit in the cafe they bring me out my hot coffee that first sip that i take you know it really makes me feel so present and so happy like it's just to be honest often at the end of the day when i think back over my day it's those little moments that have actually brought about the most well-being as opposed to all these like fleeting material things. Yeah, look, I see what you're saying. I was a guest on a friend's podcast and we talked exactly about that coffee ritual in the morning about sitting and making, whether it's tea or coffee or whatever, but in the morning, waking up, making that tea or coffee and sitting for however long it takes just to enjoy that moment, right? And that can be For me, that's a really meditative moment for me in the morning. Like I look forward to spending that half an hour just sitting and sipping a cup of tea. It's, you know, it it really is a beautiful way to start the day. Do you think, and I I hear what you're saying around the experience and two things that kind of come up for me, it's like having those experiences to discover that, you know, maybe these big financial gains that we're making, whether it's purchasing things or making more money, having those experiences around that and and having that sense of real or that realization that maybe these big things aren't necessarily an ongoing sense of 
contentment or happiness. Do you think that naturally comes with age? Or two, do you think regardless of age, it's more about the process and of being aware of that? Because I guess sometimes we might go through periods where we're just unaware, you know, it's kind of we're just purchasing, purchasing, purchasing without contemplating or taking that moment? Look, I I live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and I can tell you now there are plenty of (laughs) 80-year-old men driving around in hotted up (laughs) Ferraris that I won't presume to know what there is going on in their heads. But I, I don't think it's an age thing. I think it's very much a combination of things, you know, life experiences, certainly trauma, the research shows can change the way that we view the world and what we value you know, the people that you spend time with, the practices that you're exposed to, you know, it can sometimes be something as small as going to a random yoga class at the gym and you have this instructor who has these really profound things to say and and you're not someone who would normally engage in that. You go to a yoga class thinking it's a physical practice and suddenly the cogs in your brain start turning and you think, hang on a second, that's a great point. Maybe that's something. And then, you you know, as soon as those little kind of parts of your mind are activated, you become more conscious of it and you, you'll notice, you know, more of these bits and pieces in your daily life. So, I, yeah, I think in it, the answer, I think, is that it's it's much more an experiential and probably often a purposeful change as opposed to something that just happens with age. And why do you think that is? Why do you think we aren't so great at knowing what makes us happy or you know, I guess committing sometimes to those practices that might, you know, lead to longer term happiness. Why do you think we aren't so wired that way naturally or with age, for example? I think, I mean, I, I went and saw the amazing Richard Dawkins speak on Saturday night um, in Sydney and he's an evolutionary biologist. And so he was talking a lot about Darwin and evolution. And when you think about it really from an evolutionary perspective, there's happiness, unfortunately, doesn't help survival. So what helps survival is things like connection because we're pack animals. So what's going to promote connection? Being on edge, you know, looking out for danger all the time. So our brain is naturally geared to do do whatever it takes to survive. And so primal humans, you know, we if we were happy and content, we probably wouldn't be as driven to go out and you know, run away from the animals or chase food, you know, contentment and happiness aren't part of survival. And so I think even though human beings have changed so much and, you know, philosophers from 2,500 years ago, like Socrates spoke about all of this stuff, we, we still haven't really changed that much in that period of time. We're still kind of, I think, essentially these primal brains that are driven for survival. And do you think therefore, you know, this pursuit of happiness is maybe the wrong pursuit (laughs) that maybe we need to be more conscious and aware of that? I think definitely. And I think that's where a lot of the science in psychology is going. Certainly my master's in in positive psychology and a lot of the research is now highlighting the fact that in fact, unhappiness and suffering is a necessary part of well-being because we need that contrast. If life is all (laughs) rainbows and butterflies, we're not able to really appreciate the good moments. You know, you need the negative emotion in order to appreciate the positive. So, you know, seeking happiness even in itself, we don't have a great definition for. It varies between individuals. What makes Mark happy is different to what makes Beck happy. It's it's such a complicated concept, I think. It's, it's difficult for us to, A, define what it is for us, what is happiness for you. And then secondarily, is it really the best thing to be seeking? I don't think so, because I think we're such complex beings. We need this kind of rainbow of emotion in order to experience life. 
And at the end of the day, as the Buddha say, life is full of suffering. And if you're always looking for happiness, you, you're never going to be happy because you're unfortunately suffering is a part of that. So it's it's learning to experience well-being in your daily life despite the suffering, I think that's key. That's a pretty huge shift in the narrative, right? Because if you look, especially, you know, I guess our Western culture, we're often taught if you look at all the happy movies, you know, they're all very beautiful you know, good feeling, happy stories and often happy love stories as well. But that's quite a shift to think that, you know, maybe we aren't wired, well, we aren't wired perfectly and only for happiness. And, you know, interesting what you just said there around like, what would happiness be if suffering didn't exist as well, right? Like it's kind of, you do need that contrast between the two to be able to experience the ups. Um, you must also experience the low as well. Yeah, definitely. What we talk about more, I guess now is seeking well-being as opposed to happiness. And well-being is now considered this much more complex concept that does include elements of, you know, low emotional effect or, you know, what we would class as negative emotions well-being can incorporate all of that, whereas happiness, I guess, maybe is a slightly outdated thing to be seeking. Sounds a bit ridiculous, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, I hear what you're saying, right? It's, we've got all of these emotions that we experience, all these states of beings that we experience naturally. Who's to say that just happiness and the good feels are the only ones, you know? Like, of course, naturally they, they feel good, but it, yeah, I think it's that kind of mind shift away from, you know, just this pure pleasure. And that's the only state to, yeah, as you've just said, a really well-rounded sense of well-being, which incorporates all feeling, all emotion, and it's all warranted and equally welcome, I guess. Yeah. I think, and what you're talking about when you're talking about that pleasure is what we classify as like hedonic happiness or hedonic well-being, which is really that, you know, just enjoying all the good, like eating lots of brie and like drinking lots of wine and having lots of sex. Like it's this really, I guess, you know, the ancient Greek view of what a good life is in a way. But, but what really what we know is if you sit around drinking a lot of wine and eating a lot of cheese, you'll probably end up fairly unwell and then your experience of well-being won't be that great. So really what we need is a more Eastern view potentially of well-being, which, which is what we would class as eudaimonic well-being, which includes things like meaning in life and purpose and you know more complex ideas around what well-being is. Speaking about connection and you know that, that drive towards connection and social well-being and recognizing that maybe this gathering of material stuff can, you know, help us to create connection. It just brings up for me this idea around comparison as well. And whether, you know, there are, when you think about, oh, my neighbor has this big car, I need to get that big car. Like, is there, I was talking to one of our previous guests, Andrew Oswald, and he was talking, we were talking about the happiness U curve. And he was saying that comparison is often the bane of human existence and that we shouldn't be comparing. <laughs> My question for you is around, you know, are there potentially good and negative aspects of comparison? And yeah, how, how should we maybe, or if it's needed to reframe comparison of, uh, from, of ourselves to others? You know, I obviously the easy answer is generally it's not as your, as your previous guest said. I would agree it's generally not a helpful thing in life. I think you know the classic scenario is I don't know you're in the gym and you see this guy with these massive biceps and you're like God, 
what I wouldn't give for those incredible biceps. But at the end of the day, when we're comparing ourselves to this person we don't know, we don't really understand what's going on in order for him to achieve those biceps or what's what his, the rest of his life is like. You know, does he wake up every morning hating himself because his dad never thought he was good enough? And so he goes to the gym and lifts heavy weights to sort of deal with that low self-esteem. And probably, possibly, he lives off chicken and broccoli and, you know, you really love Italian cuisine and so living that lifestyle would just never be for you. So comparing ourselves to someone where we don't know the backstory, I think is a dangerous, slippery slope. Um, you know, we could talk all day about the downsides. It's, there's obviously a lot of issues around comparison. There's just the, the very fact that unfortunately we don't live in a fair society and so it's not completely possible for us to achieve everything that everyone around us is achieving just because of perhaps, you know, genetic factors, you just might not be built like a footballer. So comparing yourself to, you know, AFL player and you desperately want to be an AFL player isn't helpful, can be environmental and financial factors that prevent you from achieving these goals. So really staying in our own lane is obviously much more helpful. Comparing yourself only to yourself, I think, is generally the most helpful strategy. I think the one scenario maybe where it can be useful is in the case of someone sort of like a mentor, if there's someone who has a similar set of values to you, who is living a life that you would love to see yourself living, you know, in a, in a really kind of a more pure form. I, I think obviously looking at someone's material objects is not necessarily a helpful comparison component, but maybe looking at how they live their life, how they achieved their goals, if they've achieved goals that you also wish, wish to achieve. And if they really are truly someone who you look up to in, in all facets of their life, then I think that can be helpful just to help guide you because they've gone down the path that you want to go down. And maybe they've got some tips that can, that can help you. But I think outside of that, it's generally not something that we want to be adding to the many things that are going through our brain all day. So, yeah, I guess seeing it as a, as a good example, you know, of potentially, yeah, wanting to implement some positive changes in your life that emulates someone that you really look up to and believe in. Yeah, I can see that that would be a really beautiful way to kind of, I guess, in a way, compare yourself and see where you're at against that idea. And again, maybe comparison's not the right word there. So, you know, yeah. It sounds a bit like coaching, I guess. Maybe it's kind of, yeah, mentorship. Yeah. Similarly to, you know, materialism, do you think that comparison also comes from a place of deeper, um, deeper need for connection? Do you think that that's possible? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's that whole sort of piece around reference group bias, which is, uh, you know, the people that we mix with tend to be the people that we try to be more like, or, you know, you compare yourself to the people that you're surrounded by, which again is, you know, if you're similar to someone, then you're more likely to be accepted by them. So I think definitely that would play a really big role in the comparison piece. Yeah. And it, again, from a survival perspective, if everyone around you is really strong and you're not strong, maybe that's something that you need to then be building upon or everyone else is whittling, is that the word, sticks to, you know, create fire or <laughs> whatever, then you too should be doing that because you're going to be left behind, you know? Beck, look, it's been really great chatting to you this morning about this topic. Um, very interesting topic. I really... Yeah, I really love that reframing of let's just recognize that we are looking for connection and not only just ourselves, but even those out in the world, we're all probably at some level, you know, searching for that deeper sense of connection. And we are doing our best in this modern world to try and make that happen. 
and sometimes that's yeah collecting a lot of stuff but yeah i i guess it's trying to look at the ways that we can build that sense of connection that might not be you know really challenging the bank balance for example what's maybe one or two ways that you, uh, that we could do that if i guess you know for the listener right now you know what's something that they might be able to do this week and so rather than purchasing that brand new car that i'm saved a couple in my phone already what's maybe something i could do this week instead i think i mean the first thing which we talk about a lot is basically like what's the opposite of wanting its gratitude and so as much as everyone gets sick of being told to practice gratitude i the research behind it is so strong and it really makes a lot of sense to be a practice that will so i think my my personal favorite gratitude is what I'm excited about today. So every morning these days, I've got a toddler, so I don't have a lot of time, but I (laughs) sit down and while she's eating breakfast, I try and have a quick jot down of three things that I'm excited about today. And they're often tiny things like we talked about, like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or being able to sit still for five minutes on my own or, you know, this chat with you was on my list this morning. So three things you're excited about today. And it sort of just changes the mindset from being, what do I want? What are the things that I don't have that I need in my life to what have I got that's great already? And then I think you just sort of go through the day appreciating things a little bit more. And then the second thing I would say around connection is this concept about around micro connections, which I think have sort of become, you know, like small talks become a dirty word. Like people don't, you know, I don't want to do small talk. And I obviously talking to you like this on a deeper level is my favorite way of connecting with people, but it's not possible on a day-to-day basis. But the research has shown that even for introverts and people that believe that they don't get much out of micro interactions, actually get this real boost of belonging, connection, and also their mood when they have even a small interaction with just a stranger on the train or the barista in the coffee shop. So these little micro interactions. So tomorrow morning, instead of scrolling through your phone while you're waiting for your coffee, compliment someone's dog or tell the barista that you really like their coffee or, you know, say hi to your neighbor. And you'll be surprised as you walk away, you do get this like tiny little dopamine boost. And probably the person that you spoke to will give get the same, which is a lovely little side effect. It's so interesting, Beck, that you've just said that to me now, because last week I was chatting with my therapist last Thursday around this exact idea of the difference between these deep and meaningful relationships and conversations versus those that, um, you know, maybe a little lighter and in passing and yeah, small talk, as you said, right? Like, You know, I've been teaching yoga for a long time. I'm 41. I'm a single person with no kids. Like I've had a lot of time to explore myself and, you know, retreats and yoga and going deep and all this sort of stuff. And I've had this, I guess, a bit of a, not necessarily a chip, but maybe even a judgment of those relationships that aren't as deep as all of this, you know, like or, or someone that might not be able to have, you know, go that far in a conversation. And I've not, even with my therapist last week, I've not heard, you know, what you just said then around actually there's value in these micro connections. There's a lot of value and you will feel good after that. And not everything has to be so deep and serious and like, oh my God, what about enlightenment? Like, you know, because that, that also for me, can get heavy. And that's why I was having that conversation last week, because sometimes all of that kind of 
need for everything to have purpose and meaning and depth. And what about, you know, the universe? Yeah, honestly, I I know I'm sharing this very openly right now, but it was like, wow, I just had that conversation last week. No one has ever said that, you know what, these are also equally valuable. And, And for you right now, this is kind of your, after gratitude, put attention and focus on these micro conversations or connections because there's value there. Yeah, I really thank you for sharing that. And I am exactly the same. And I spent, you know, probably good 10 years being snobby about my conversations, I would say. But I, you know, my husband, my now husband would say, you know, just because people are different to you and don't like talking about the same things as you doesn't mean they can't be, you know, your good friends. So I completely hear you. However, I I think studying positive psychology has uh, sort of opened me up to that. And also COVID presented this real opportunity for that because we didn't have the opportunity to see our good friends. So suddenly these like the little tiny interactions as you walked past someone on the street became our only option for face-to-face interaction. And I think that's when I saw the power of it. And I started making sure every single person I walked past on the street, I would smile and say, good morning. And the boost that it gave me, and often, you know, some people look at you like you're about to steal their handbag, but other people look really like, hi, you know, they're, they're happy. People want to interact. They want to be part of a community. It's a, I think it's a great thing. We've kind of gone too far the other direction and it's nice to bring it back to a bit more of that sort of community, human interaction feel in our lives. What a beautiful way to finish, especially on this topic that we're discussing. So, you know, delete car sales, delete the app, go out onto the street, wave across the fence to your neighbor and say good morning and, and write down what you're grateful for. Fully fantastic. Beck, it's been so lovely. And thank you for that. Like, that was a huge moment for me. It's so interesting that, you know, I start this conversation a week ago and then here we are. Um, yeah, that's, that's an absolute gold nugget for me. So thank you very much. It's been lovely chatting to you. Delightful. Thank you so much, Mark. Gratitude and mini connections. I just love that. As you heard, mini connections really struck a chord with me. And it's something I've only just started contemplating myself. Of course, the big and deep relationships and conversations are an important part of life and well-being, but to have permission to see the value in mini connections was a huge takeaway for me today. Thank you, Beck. If you like this episode and think that it might be handy for someone, then feel free to share. Hit subscribe and I would love it if you could give us a rating. Thanks so much for pressing play. Until next time, bye for now.